Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Back from a too short vacation, I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping this week a little after 11 a.m., Thursday, August 24th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today, we're joined by Joanne Kennan of Politico. Hey, Julie. Paige Winfield-Cunningham of The Washington Post. Hi. And Margot Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Good morning. So we finally have a slow health news week here in D.C., but like... Your disclaimer may be less relevant this week. That's right. Thank goodness. Maybe what if we come out and find out that something just happened? Never rule it out. (laughs) I think we finally maybe have a slow news health news week in D.C., but like the repeal and replace effort, it's not quite dead yet. We're already bracing for what happens when Congress comes back in less than two weeks. That makes me sad. Um, Let's start with what I think might be the only not totally zombie Republican repeal and replace proposal still under any discussion. It's from Senators Lindsey Graham, Bill Cassidy, and Dean Heller, although sometimes mentioned in different orders. Um, Who wants to summarize what is in it? Paige? Yeah, so I can talk about that a little bit. We saw this proposal come out from from Graham and Cassidy last month. And while they're terming this as a conservative idea to give more control to the states, it actually would be a lot more drastic in terms of uh, what it would do to the marketplace subsidies and Medicaid expansion than both the House and the Senate bills. So basically what it would do, it it would eliminate both of those streams of funding put everything into a lump sum, which would then be doled out to the states. But uh, it would actually hurt the states that have expanded Medicaid uh, because of the formula that it would be based on. So a lot of these states would actually see a smaller share of this lump sum. The share of funding would actually decrease steadily uh, until uh, 2026, at which point states would only be able to get about 50 percent of the funding they're currently receiving for Medicaid expansion and for the subsidies. And then there would be a huge cliff in 2027 because that funding would be completely eliminated. Um, The way that Cassidy and Graham and now Heller are kind of trying to sell this bill is they're saying that this returns innovation to the states. This gives the governors more control over this money. Um, But you can also make the argument that it's giving states uh, a lot of money that's untethered to federal requirements. States would not necessarily have to spend this money on getting people insurance uh, directly. They could spend it on any number of ways. They could put it into reinsurance pools um, and and, and so wouldn't necessarily be directly benefiting more low-income Americans who who were being benefited by the subsidies and the Medicaid expansion. And I, I think we should point out that you know, that um, Senator Cassidy has been pushing, pushing some variation of this really since the beginning of the year. And the way it was originally advertised is that it would let states who like the Affordable Care Act keep the Affordable Care Act and states that didn't like it take the money and do whatever they want with it. But that's not exactly how this proposal really would play out, is it? Yeah, I think there are two main reasons why this would be a lot harder for states that wanted to keep the Affordable Care Act. One is obviously it's just less money. You know, initially it asks them to match a certain percentage of money that they're getting from the federal government more than they are now. And then over time, the funding formula sort of goes away. Uh, For some states that have been the most enthusiastic embracers of Obamacare, they would get less money because the uh, formula in the bill would sort of redistribute the total amount spent on the programs to different states. And so more rural states, states that did not expand Medicaid are more likely to get a larger share. And the states that really liked Obamacare would get less. But I also think a really important difference is that this bill would shift a whole lot of administrative function to the states and a lot of responsibility and oversight and regulation. 
And even the states that really like Obamacare, they may not necessarily have the capacity or the expertise to do all of the things that for example, the Medicaid uh, program does. You know, CMS has like this huge office of people whose job it is to administer Medicaid. And similarly for these insurance regulations through healthcare.gov and other capacities in Sosio. And asking states sort of precipitously all of a sudden to take all of that on, it may be very overwhelming, even for states that basically want to preserve a similar structure. They're still relying on the federal government to do a lot of it for them. So while I think it does hit this nice talking point of giving states more flexibility and autonomy, and it may be welcome to states that want to do something quite different from Obamacare, this is certainly not a great situation for the states that like a lot of the existing policy infrastructure. So, Joanne, let's talk about you know whether or not we might even see a, another debate. The the president in in his rant Tuesday night, you know, uh, uh, criticized the Senate again for not getting this done and sort of implied that they really should go back and and take another whack at it. Do you do you think that it's even likely that we'll see an opportunity to talk about this bill on the Senate floor? If Graham, Cassidy, and Heller come into Mitch McConnell and say we have fifty one votes, yeah, you'd see. They go to the Senate floor. If they come back and say, you know, we think we've got a 30 percent chance of maybe getting the votes. I, I, you know, Mitch McConnell isn't has a very full slate of things to do in September, which some of which we're going to come back and talk to. He's got a ton of things to do in a short period of time. Does he want to spend some of that time on another health bill when clearly some senators have already said, we've really had enough. We want to do stabilization. We would like to spend the limited time we have in September, you know, at least coming up with a short-term fix that lets us hit pause and figure out where we're going with Obamacare or post-Obamacare, whatever transformations they do or stabilization they do. So, And it's not like Mitch McConnell really seems to be in the mood to just do whatever President Trump um, asks him to do because from all reports – they are not speaking, and the last time they spoke, it was in very loud tones. So, no, I, at this point, unlikely, impossible. That's the the, the, the ever-present caveat, you know. Could it happen? Yeah. Is it likely? No. And it was notable yesterday, I think, McConnell came out with a statement when people were asking him about this, these altercations with yeah, Trump. We, we should mention that there have been a couple of stories this week about the uh, the deteriorating relationship, shall we say, between the president and the majority leader of the and Senate. And none of those right, stories but... have been denied by any party. <laughs> but it was notable that, you know, he was talking about how they want to move on to this agenda in September, but he didn't once mention repealing the ACA as a goal. He said something to the effect of uh, improving the marketplaces or stabilizing things or something like that. So I think that probably signals a shift in his thinking at this point. He actually, uh, Senator McConnell was in uh, Louisville at a Chamber of Commerce event a few days ago, and the press reports uh, quoted him as saying it was, I believe the words were, a murky path. <laughs> for, for health reform. Yes. Yeah. To, to mix a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. To mix. Well, that's good for health care. I mean, why not? <laughs> All right. Well, well, since this looks like something that's probably not going to happen, let's talk about something that is going to happen, at least I think it will, and that's open enrollment for individual health insurance for 2018. Um, this is the time, this is theoretically the only time during the year that people can sign up for plans or change plans. Uh, and this year's open enrollment is going to look very different from the, the four we've had previously. Um, 
Right. So for one thing, it's uh, half the se- half the time. So only six weeks instead of 12 weeks. It starts November 1st. And uh, there's really a lack of clarity so far from what I can pick up in talking to some of the navigator groups. You know, these groups have gotten grants for the last two years to do enrollment outreach. Um, and when I checked in with a few of them over the last few weeks, they said they don't have any concrete indications they're not going to get that third and final year of grant funding, but they also haven't been assured that they will. And I think the uh, HHS needs to let them know sometime in September. Um, but, you know, they've been relatively quiet about what their strategy is. I mean, remember at they, the, the administration, the administration, right. Um, so near the end of last enrollment season, um, they pulled some of the advertising, the administration pulled some of the advertising around the law. Um, and so I think there's this kind of a sense within the agency that, you know, the career staff are, are, are sort of going on with what they've been doing over the last few years. And they're trying to kind of carry out the duties of, of, of running healthcare.gov and trying to get as many people enrolled as possible. But then you see sort of this conflict among the political pointies at the top and sort of this messaging, this top-down messaging that the marketplaces, you know, are melting down and they've been issuing all these press releases every time, you know, an insurer draws out of the market, withdraws from the marketplaces. And so there's sort of that weird conflict going on at the agency. Um, So, but I think a lot will probably become clear over the next few weeks as we learn what their intent is kind of with this navigator funding. And, and, and what does it mean to, you know, the, the, the navigators are the people who basically help people through the process of signing up because signing up, you know, as it turns out, is a little bit more complicated than buying an airplane ticket, President Obama's promises notwithstanding. Um, what does it mean to have sort of fewer people doing that kind of outreach? So the Kaiser Family Foundation has done a fair amount of research looking at these navigators and looking at how people sign up for Obamacare. And I don't remember the last number, but the last time they put out one of these reports, I was really surprised by what a large percentage of people People really want someone holding their hand and helping to walk them through the process. I think buying insurance is really hard. It's expensive. It's important. But it's also really technical. A lot of Americans, even people with a lot of education, don't know what a deductible is, for example. They need someone to explain to them what that is. And another important thing to remember about this market is... We tend to think of the Obamacare market as being for like self-employed professionals who get in the individual market and they stay there for years and years and they know how it works. But most people in this market are people who are there for a short time. They come in for one year, then they get a new job with health coverage or their income drops and they end up becoming eligible for Medicaid. And so every year there are some repeat customers, but there also are millions of Americans who are coming into this market either for the first time ever or for the first time in many years. And so... I think there's a view that having people who can assist them actually really gets more of them across the finish line, helps them actually complete the process and get coverage, but also helps them make a good choice. So, Joanne, there's all this uncertainty around this, around open enrollment, around how many you know plans are going to be offered, around you know how much it's all going to cost. I remember, you know, there were there were some polls um, even before the Trump administration that said a lot of people thought that the law had already been repealed because there have been so many repeal votes in Congress. Um, that that doesn't help any of this, does well, it? Well, there's the outreach that you know Margaret and Page are talking about in terms of helping people sign up and giving information. There's also sort of the meta outreach which is the message. And, I mean, in the Obama administration, you had everybody from the president and first lady to the cabinet to, you know, all governor and local officials. There was this outreach. Go sign up. They were getting on TV. They did, the, you know, the famous one was the comedy, the ferns. The between two, the, two ferns. ferns. Um, you know, sports, you know, the chief of staff was on sports radio. Um, Catherine Sebelius, when she was secretary, and, and Celia Burwell, when she was secretary, were traveling around the country in person. I mean, we're not 
getting that message from this administration. No, we're getting the opposite We're getting the message. message that this is like this terrible, disastrous thing and it's falling apart. And all of us at this table would agree there are problems in Obamacare, but we also see um, the, the, there's a gap between meltdown, disaster, falling apart, gone, as the president says. It's over. It's not over. It has problems. It is way more stable than it is being described as. Um, Speaker Ryan, on his town hall meeting, what was that, Monday night, You know, talked about dozens of counties with not a single insurer. That is not a true statement. In June, it, it would have been a true statement. In June, it looked like there were like 40 to 45 counties that might not have any carriers. And it would have been, you know, we've talked about this extensively in prior podcasts, that would have been a problem for the people who lived in those counties. We are now down to one county in Ohio with something like 334 people That's affected. That's my trivia question. Can anybody name the county in Ohio? It's Paul, is it starts with a P, it's Pauli, Pauline or Paul, something, Paul? Paulding. Paulding. And I, I actually have the, the Ohio History Central the, discussion of Paulding County. There are 334 Affordable Care Act enrollees there. Um, and what I love from this, it said, uh, even though it was created in 1820, it was not until 1887 that residents were able to drain most of the Great Black Swamp and the reservoir, <laughs> opening the land to farming and further settlements. So it's, that, <laughs> that is, at the moment, the only county that lacks an insurer for November 1st, my gut feeling, and I don't even think it'll take until November 1st, I think sometime in the next couple of weeks, we will probably see a carrier in there. So, you know, we're not getting a message of, you know, Obamacare is good for you. We're getting a message from the administration, Obamacare is bad for you. What, Joanne, was you're saying one, one of the things where that might play out is the individual mandate, because you heard repeatedly from the administration, the mandate's there, you're going to get this fine if you don't get coverage. And so even though Price, uh, HHS Secretary Price doesn't have the authority to remove the individual mandate, uh, they can really make an impact just by their messaging. And if they're not going out and telling people that they need to sign up for coverage, people may think, they may, they may also think that's repealed since that's what Republicans have been talking about yeah, for so long. There's this big time gap between when you sign up for insurance and when you get hit with a penalty for not having insurance. So even if the enforcement was like totally gung-ho and, you know, more enthusiastic even than it was during the Obama administration, people who are kind of getting the message now that they don't have to have insurance will have missed their chance to sign up by the time they get hit with a penalty. So I'm not saying that the enforcement will be exactly the same. We really don't know the answer to that. But the messaging does sort of affect people. And by the time they pay their taxes, it will be too late for most of them to get insurance. I mean, none of us have gotten a single press release from HHS or anyone else in this administration saying this is a good thing and you should sign up. Every single press release we get says, you know, more evidence that Obamacare is failing. And and that creates, I mean, it's, as, as we all said, signing up for insurance is confusing. People are confused about the political status. Has it been repealed? Has it been thrown out? Will they get fined? To add, um, and, and plus, you know, it, people are procrastinators too. We know there's always um, you know, more signing up at the last minute. And now they may have remembered they did it in January last year, as Paige pointed out. They've only got six weeks till mid-December this year. Uh, you know, I would, I would really be, I think all of us would be surprised if enrollment reaches last year's levels. Yeah. Now, I, I would throw in one thing, though, that's sort of been interesting coming out of HHS is that um, they issued a rule, I believe it was last spring, allowing brokers a lot more latitude in helping people sign up for coverage. And this is something I think the Obama administration had been working on but had never actually finalized. And so this actually, I've talked to like marketplace folks, and they do think that this is a way um, that 
that could help people um, get signed up if they're not working with a navigator or going directly to healthcare.gov. Although there was a lot of, of discussion among the brokers because they were getting increasingly not paid for doing all of this. And unlike navigators who are volunteers, brokers actually make money off right. signing people up for insurance. Yeah. And I've talked to some consumer advocates about it, and they kind of have mixed feelings. They think on one hand, it's great to have more venues for people to get informed about their coverage options. On the other hand, they have some concerns that the brokers may not give people the full range of options or totally allow them to explore the, all of their opportunities there. Let's not forget also that premiums are expected to go up quite a lot this year. Uh, we don't know exactly how much, but you know we've seen some of these initial rate filings. The carriers have some, you know, the usual reasons for wanting to raise rates, but they also seem worried about this stuff, about a lack of outreach, a lack of mandate enforcement, and of course, concern that the CSRs may not get paid. So, and just you know, I know everybody should know what they are by now, but the CSRs <laughs> are, are the, these cost-sharing subsidies for people who are in less than than two and a half times poverty that that the uh, uh, the Trump administration administration is basically doling out on a, on a month-by-month basis and threatening to stop paying them and is responsible, as far as we can tell, for, for close to 20 percent of next year's um, proposed increases uh, that insurers are filing just in case those go away. There are a lot of people who are coming into this market who are not subsidized. So most people who are buying Obamacare plans are getting some form of federal subsidy. And so that means that they are not particularly exposed to the increases. But there is a small percentage of people in the exchange who are not subsidized. They're going to be looking at very expensive insurance relative to last year. And then there are, of course, many people who buy their own insurance on the individual market off of the exchange. These are the people that often uh, buy insurance through brokers. And, you know, health insurance is really costly. And for families that were struggling to pay this year's premium, if they're looking at an increase of another 20 percent and maybe they hear a kind of mixed message about whether or not they're going to get stuck with a penalty if they don't buy, I think that also could tend to depress enrollment. You know, aside from any kind of outreach and sign up and the sorts of things we usually talk about with open enrollment, I think the prices alone could be, uh, you know, dissuading of some people. But we, we also the, – the other sort of unknown is – the, there has clearly there is an advocacy community that has grown up around the ACA. They have been politically potent this year. They prevented repeal. Um, we don't know, um, you know, on the ground there are networks and advocacy groups and clinics and community health clinics and hospitals that will continue signing people up. We don't know how vigorous that will be. We don't know how whether they'll get drowned out. We don't know whether the political energy will sort of turn into a more practical um, campaign to get people to sign up. Um, and also remember, social media is free, and you you can do some messaging or counter-messaging in this case that is pro-enrollment. I mean, do I think it'll be as well-organized as when Enroll America was out there and funded with millions of dollars? No, I don't. But, I mean, it's not like there's not also... You know, there's a cacophony. There always has been. That's one of the problems with the laws, that people remain confused, partly because it is, in fact, complicated and confusing, but partly because not just mixed messages and contradictory messages, they've been screamed at for five years, seven years, eight years, whatever we are now. Um, so will there be a pro, here's how you sign up, um, voice from an advocacy community that is still salient and audible? Maybe. You know, we don't, you know, in some states, not others. I feel like the messaging has been in the Obama administration was very much kind of like throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Right. So there were navigators and there were assisters and there was advertising and then there was these cabinet officials going around the the country trying to get uh, earned media and 
you know, there were, and there and there are these groups that were on their own. And so there was a, there were a lot of different outreach strategies. And I don't know that all of them have been particularly well studied. It seems like in aggregate, they helped get make people aware and get them signed up. But the Trump administration uh, put out a press release this week where they said they were canceling one program because they calculated that it cost more than $1,000 per person that was signed up through that program. And I think that's, you know, it, I think there are some interesting questions to ask mm-hmm. about whether each of the things that have been done in the past are the best way to do it. Yeah. I guess I think the reason why Obamacare advocates are particularly concerned about this open enrollment period is because they feel that the Trump administration, rather than trying to uh, evaluate the evidence and pick the programs that work best and sort of put resources there, that they're concerned that they're just going to pull back on everything. Yeah, Margo and Joanne, you're right that, um, you know, there are a lot of industry folks that were already sort of well-placed to help people sign up. And one good example is tax preparers, you know, and when people are going to, um, of course, the I guess the enrollment season doesn't really overlap that's the same one, way this year. That's actually one of the problems, yeah, I think, actually, with, not... with this short enrollment period is that it's so, as Margo was saying, it is so far divorced from when you might actually pay a penalty. Right. And of course, one of the things they did this year that the Trump administration did that the insurance industry wanted was to make it harder to sign up in between open enrollment periods to keep people from waiting till they get they sick. But need the enrollment period, uh, it's not just short, but it's also during a time of year where a lot of low-income people who uh, are the kind of prime audience for Obamacare tend to be the most financially strapped. So the mm-hmm. enrollment period kind of uh, spans Thanksgiving and Christmas. And we know that a lot of low-income families, you know, often even go into debt at Christmas in order to buy presents for their kids in order to visit their families. So it is a time when I think it's difficult for a lot of these kinds of people to make these big financial commitments and select health plans. I wonder if just that timing alone, well, you right, know, aside in, from the shortening and the advertising and all the other things past, we're talking about. Right. Well, because in past years, um, the thought was that when people go to file their taxes, they still had some time left to sign up because enrollment season went through the end of January. And a lot of times it is these lower income people who right after the holidays want to file their taxes, want to get their refund. And so when they go do their taxes. Um, their advisors there were sort of well positioned to say, here are your options. You want to avoid this penalty. Here's how you can sign up. And that's not going to happen. Well, I think we're going we're gonna to talk more about open enrollment as it gets closer, but let's talk about something that's closer still, uh, which is September. Um, I think, as Joanne mentioned, Congress has 12 legislative days before the start of the next fiscal year, October 1st, and an enormous amount to get done. So uh, how, how who, who, why, Joanne, why don't you start with all the things they actually have to do in those 12 days? Well, I think one of the really interesting questions is September really end in September. Um, I mean, on our calendars, it's one page. On the congressional calendar, it may well go into October. Um, Congress has to um, finish all their appropriation bills by the end of September. They have to um, deal with CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, which is something that is of concern to all of us. They have to, and which may become a vehicle to have some other health care fights as part of that And one, um, bill. one of the few really bipartisan health programs going it, right now. CHIP is bipartisan, but all the things they tr- may try to put on it are not bipartisan. At the end of the day, you'll have a bipartisan CHIP, but you could have a rocky partisan road on your way to a bipartisanship. Um, then they have to deal with the debt ceiling, which is also, you know, a super, super contentious issue, particularly with House conservatives. So so Ryan and, and McConnell have, you know, an enormous amount to accomplish. And there, there are other things. Those are just examples of some of the biggies. Now, the, we all know that we don't always see Congress finish their spending bills by September, excuse me, by October 1st. We have seen um, a government shutdown a few years ago. President Trump this this week threatened another one over his border wall. Um, they often do what they call continuing resolutions, which are short-term fixes that could keep the spending fight going into 
October, November, whenever they, however they long to do temporary fixes. In addition, there's a really, this is very relevant to the repeal debate. Uh, as most of our listeners know, they've been working under this um, somewhat arcane budget rule called reconciliation, which lets the Republicans do um, Obamacare repeal under 51 votes. Norm with 50 votes plus Vice President Pence, it would probably be if they ever got that 50th vote. Um, Norm, we don't know what's normal. I mean, we get to September 31st, their 30th. 30th um, we could have. Fiscal year is why <laughs> that's an important deadline. <laughs> right. The, the, um, the, normally, you know, you start, you turn the page. We're in this situation now where the page on Obamacare will never totally be turned. And the parliament, Senate parliamentarian will have to decide, and there, there's not a lot of precedent for this, so we I don't think know. There's no precedent. We don't know how she'll decide. Um, does the reconciliation framework that they've been working under, does it does it expire at the end of the fiscal year or can it get pushed into October? We know it would expire if and when they came up with their next reconciliation bill, which would be about tax reform or tax cuts. Um, they don't have that yet. So can they continue sort of puttering along under this one uh, into October or whatever date they choose? So, so it, yes, we have a busy September, but we're not sure it's only in September. We may have to redefine September <laughs> to, till Christmas or whatever. I don't know. So is there a chance, and, and this is sort of the thing that keeps me up at night, that a lot of these things get packaged together, that well, CHIP becomes a vehicle for... Yeah, I think CHIP is seen as like the, the must-pass piece of legislation, right? So there's even been some talk of attaching some kind of legislation, uh, permanently funding the cost-sharing reductions, uh, subsidies. Um, that's certainly a top priority of Alexander. And of course, his committee is going to have hearings on September 6th and 7th, where they're going to bring in um, some governors and some insurance commissioners. And this is there's talk about this kind of being this bipartisan effort, um, although I think it was notable. I think yesterday some Republican staffers confirmed that reinsurance, which which could have been one of these bipartisan ideas on the table, is not actually on the table. And so it's kind of hard to see at this point beyond the CSRs what what could sort of be a bipartisan approach. Right. And if they do the cost sharing, if they do CSRs, I'm not sure it becomes permanent either. I mean, you, the, the Democrats would like them to be permanently funded. I think the Republicans are more likely to do a short, shorter term, a year, year and a half, whatever, because they there are incentives. First of all, the conservatives aren't going to want to permanently fix it. And secondly, there are incentives to create cliffs in the future where you have to stop and have another fight and see what you can win as a, you know, you bargain. That way we can have fun Septembers forever. Well, we have. <laughs> well, September is always a, a crazy busy month. One of the things I've actually been trying to sort out is whether they have to do these these CSRs, whether it has to be an appropriation or an authorization. I think what I'm learning is that the answer is yes, <laughs> that, that they can actually fix it either way. Um, because They could it, fix it under the spending bills, too. I mean, they have more than one path. And the spending bill is also a must-pass at some point. And even with CHIP, we're talking about, well, they have to, re they have to renew CHIP. But they could also do a short-term fix. I mean, they could do, if they're, they, if they're having some kind of, you know, big cosmic fight about what goes on to, you know, what gets attached, and they can't get to that little happy bipartisan moment, um, they could do a three-month extension. And most states don't run out of money for a few more months. They could do something. Short. I mean, Congress really knows how to kick the can. You know, that's like, you know, if they, you, you know, under their shirts, they I think they all have that tattooed. Um, 
so we're all thinking, okay, CHIP is going to be done in September. There's the possibility that even CHIP isn't done. Just, I don't really like to think about that. I would and rather it, have it done in well, September. Well, and even there's even fluidity in like what a long-term bill would be because I think Republicans want more of like a two-year bill and Democrats want a four-year bill. So It'll that's be two years. Flexible. It won't be four yeah, years. One, one thing that's that, interesting that was about... Fight, that was a fight last time, by the way. I mean, it's weird that everybody agrees on CHIP because CHIP has been really contentious over the last couple of times. This is the Children's Health they Insurance Program. in a happy place, but they don't yeah. get there in a happy way. Yeah, I think that's right. One thing that a lot of these September bills have in common, so in this category I'll put CHIP, the appropriations bills, and the debt ceiling, is that Republicans are not going to be able to pass those bills alone. There is, you know, a pretty substantial contingent in the House of the Freedom Caucus and probably, you know, some of the most conservative senators who just are not going to vote for those bills. And so what it means is that they almost by definition have to be bipartisan in order to get across the finish line. And so I do think that those create some opportunities for some kind of compromise on health care that you don't necessarily see in every piece of legislation or even every piece of legislation that looks likely to pass. There's a reason why we don't know which vehicle they're going to choose. It's because in some ways, any of them could be. Any of them are going to be bills that are going to require Democratic votes in order to happen. And we should explain to listeners that vehicles are pieces of legislation. They're not cars. <laughs> but they feel like cars. <laughs> Driverless cars. Driverless. Right? The other uh, favorite or metaphor is Christ- Christmas trees. Yes. Because right. many things get attached to them. That's right. All right. Well, we will, we will definitely come back to this one. But I think we're going to wrap things up for today. And we're going to end with our segment that we call Extra Credit, where each of us recommends a story they read recently. They think everyone else should read, too. And don't worry if you miss this. We will post the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Margo, we're going to start with you. What's your extra credit assignment? So I wanted to talk about a story that ran in Stat News this week by Max Blouse that looked at a sort of largely untested medical device that may help with pain relief and thus may help people who are trying to withdraw from opioids. And so it's this device that you hook up to your to with some electrodes to your ear and it uses some kind of stimulation that's supposed to help with pain control and you know, there is a huge desire to try to figure out ways to help people get off of opioids. And, and uh, you know, there's a paucity of addiction treatment options that are really effective. And so this is something that has a plausible theory. There's some kind of anecdotal evidence that it works. There's some kind of uncontrolled studies that have good outcomes. And this device has been broadly marketed and is being sold to a lot of patients, even though there is none of the kind of research that we would typically expect or hope for for a medical treatment that's being broadly disseminated. And it was just a reminder to me that, you know, even as policymakers are trying so hard to do something about opioids and they've been trying to put money into opioid treatment, that we don't actually always have the best places to put that money. We don't. There's sort of this gold rush now of opportunity to deal with the opioid crisis. And there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are rushing into this space. And this device may turn out to be effective, but we really don't know. And I think we're going to see a lot more things like this, things that kind of enter the market that have a good story around them and that attract money as people are really anxious for good solutions. And some of them are going to be kind of scammy and some of them may turn out to be okay. Joanne. Um, in the healthcare blog, uh, Jeff Goldsmith, who is a consultant that I think all of us know, he's uh, iconoclastic, smart, and amusing. I think we all like quoting him or listening to him. Um, but he's also had a number of serious health problems. And his essay is called Confessions of a Healthcare Super User. And he basically wrote that after you know, many decades as a healthcare consultant, a healthcare professor, a healthcare expert, being a patient, all his expertise, Doing research, he ended up just calling his friends and getting recommendations that the, that the consumer tools 
are not very useful to even the most sophisticated consumer. And he also said that his experience as a patient really left him um, both the liberal and the conservative narratives about what's wrong with health care left. He, he came convinced that both of them were wrong, that he had tons of skin in the game and knowledge to be a smart shopper. And yet that wasn't he couldn't he couldn't that didn't make a difference in in his care. And he also and he also he said he had excellent care. Um he also found that the more liberal narrative of, you know, overtreatment because of all these mismatched incentives also didn't match the experience he had with his very gifted caregivers who basically saved his life and restored his health. So it's an interesting, and it, you know, it's, he's a good read. He's fun to read. Yes. Uh, my pick is a Politico story, actually, that ran yesterday by Carla Marinucci called California Democrats Lead Attack Over Trump's Mental Health. And I've sort of been fascinated as I've watched um, these mental health organizations kind of enter this debate over whether it's appropriate to talk about Trump's temperament or just to criticize his policies. So um, this story is about how California Democrats, a number of them, have introduced measures to um, try to um, kind of evaluate um, the, the president's mental health. And um, it's interesting that the Ameri- I think it was the American Psychological Association has come out and said, you know, it's inappropriate to kind of diagnose the president unless you're actually his doctor. Another group came out in July and said it's actually OK. And so um, you, I think you see Democrats trying to kind of grapple with this question when you have this a president who, um, you know, many people do doubt that he has the temperament to be president. And yet, how far can you kind of go in trying to make a medical diagnosis about that? So I, I just found the story really interesting because she kind of went into um, some of these these how Democrats are kind of dipping their toe in the water, um, but it's still kind of like a point of controversy among among them as as to how far they can really go in talking about his mental health. That sounds fun. Um, finally, here's mine. It's from the journal Democracy. It's called Single Payer is Not a Principle by Harold Pollack from the University of Chicago. Um, basically, it's a really good history of how single payer is just one way to achieve universal health coverage. And if Democrats start to make it a litmus test, which a lot of Democrats are now talking about for the elections in 2018 and 2020, um, the Democrats could very well end up where the Republicans are now with an intra-party civil war over health care. And maybe it would be better if people kind of studied up on, on what the options are before they start fighting with each other. Um, So that's a good read. Uh, That is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We would also appreciate it if you would leave a review so others can find us. If you have comments, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth at kff.org, whatthehealth, all one word. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Sanger Katz. I'm at Joanne Kennan. I'm at PW underscore Cunningham. (laughs) We will be, Paige has to get a better Twitter handle. (laughs) We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.